It's about trying new things, being open to possibility, saying yes <laughs> when, when opportunities knock at my door. This is Linda McLaughlin and welcome to Chapters of My Life podcast. So what is Chapters of My Life podcast? First of all, I want you to imagine your past life. Right, where should I start? I'm Daniel Ludwig, trainer and leadership coach by profession, and I'm always fascinated to look back in life and turn your life stories in form of a book for other generations to learn from, but also for yourself as self-reflection and to gain new life energy. It's a challenge itself, and frankly, not everyone has thought of this. As we always think, when we get older, we should write our own life book. But in fact, we have so many experiences ready to share with others, achievements, failures to learn from, positive and negative life transitions, which in the end lead to the person we are today. This Chapters of My Life podcast is an inspiring collection of life transitions packed into a podcast audio book format, capturing the willpower and belief of people during important life-changing decisions. This is truly a pre-Christmas special Chapters of My Life podcast episode. For everyone who recaps the year 2020, might realize this year hasn't been all the way we planned, which we planned initially back in January. Grief, confusion, hopelessness might have been on each agenda. But it doesn't have to be like this. I had the pleasure to speak with Linda McLaughlin on my podcast. She is Global Board Director of ICF, International Coaching Federation, and Master Certified Coach under the ICF. I first met her end of 2016 in Sharjah, UAE. And since the first encounter, I was impressed by her coaching capabilities and the energy she brings into the room. I hope while listening to this podcast episode that you get energized with new hopes into the pre-Christmas time and with new energy for next year. This podcast episode is all about how to create hope on your journey or how Linda phrased it, create hope on your voyager. In her life book with five life chapters, which she called Hopeful Voyager, we literally went on a sailing trip from discovering in her childhood that being an independent thinker and communicator for her siblings shaped her in chapter one. She kept the sailing theme across her life book, leaving a safe harbor in chapter two to set the sail with her marriage at young age and her first husband, which she had, had from a young age, the drive to prove herself, to learn from throwing herself into cold water will never end. A less hopeful journey we go through in chapter three is where loss is a daily theme in her life but the inside voice that moving on was the only way forward chapter four is called discovering new land and it's all about moving from ireland to ue but also finding her now new partner and husband as she said she loves challenges but also encouraging others to take the leap to start the new sales and find new opportunities and adventures her last chapter is all about passing over her knowledge in coaching, but also healing and life learnings. She calls it map building, to help other building their own ship to set sail, to discover new land. You will hear throughout the listening, diversity and equality is a key component for her life journey. With all this said, let's set the sail. Go on an adventure and discover new land. Enjoy. So here we are. Thank you so much, Linda, for taking your time today. Um, 
on your side, it's afternoon. Greetings to Dubai. <laughs> Today. So, Linda, I know you for quite a long time. I mentioned that in the intro as well of the podcast um, for over two or three years, actually. It must be three years right by now. And just recently, you know, I'm part of your coaching program as well, ICF coaching program. And, you know, I realized that you have a great life story to share, you know, with a lot of ups and downs, but you're also believing in a lot of different uh, things in form of like women empowerment, um, you know, you want to make a difference in every people's life. So I thought at that time, it would be great to have an interview with you. And here we are. So thank you so much for your time. Um, Linda, um, I read in the internet before we go into, you know, how could be your, look, uh, your book look like? I read in the internet that you love theater, cinema and art. My question, when was the last time you went into a library? You know, I think you've got me on that one, Daniel. I've been in a library for a long time. I'm a Kindle person. I have converted to Kindle. Um, I'm still, uh, you know, read quite a bit, but I mm. just love the fact that Kindle now, this is an age thing, I have to admit. <laughs> it's back this, and I can enlarge the print because... Well, I have, I'm in great health, but the weakest part of me is my eyesight. So I love the Kindle. So I don't tend to buy or borrow actual books anymore for that reason. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I am, yeah. Go on. No, no, go, go, go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just saying uh, I, one of the things I do miss with the pandemic is, you know, cinemas closed, theaters closed. Uh, it's something I really enjoy. It's kind of a weekend treat for me. So I'm looking forward to when we can go back in safely to those. Definitely. I mean, I can totally relate to you when you say you're a Kindle fan. I'm also transferred all my books and most of my books to kind of a digital version, which is very convenient when you travel, you know, you have your library with you as well. And you don't need to, you know, carry all your, uh, all the books with you from one place to another, especially when you travel quite a lot. Um, so when you say you are a Kindle fan, so what, what, what is your last book you were reading? I'm reading, this is very lightweight. I, I probably should say something more intellectual. <laughs> but um, because I travel quite a bit and, and the Kindle is a great friend on long haul flights, I'm reading a series called The Seven Sisters. And it's uh, seven books. I'm not sure what you call seven books. I know uh, three books is a trilogy. So whatever seven books is. And um, the seven sisters have been adopted and the the man who adopted them dies and he leaves them the secret of their origins so mm. each book is kind of that woman's search for her origin uh, and her place within that family it's very i love anything about people always fascinates me it, they're mm -hmm. well written, but they are, you know, they're, they're page turners, Daniel. Great. 
and and I'm only just about finishing the second sister, so I have five more to go. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So you love fi fiction, uh, fiction books. That's all yeah. I can hear out of that. I read mainly fiction, but I've noticed in the last five years been drawn a bit more to biography and autobiography. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think it's that human dimension. I'm just intrigued by people and what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. Lovely. So when I, when I see now Linda, let's say stepping into a library and or and linda is looking for her own book so you're currently in library and you're looking for your own book in which section would you go to to look for your autobiography would it be in the autobiography section or in a, in a complete different section hmm. I, i'm tempted to say autobiography because perhaps that's the most straightforward answer um but I think I might go towards fiction. I might go towards mm. um, because when I look back on my life now, over six decades, um, the life I've had, I could not have imagined that as a young girl growing up, you know, in Ireland in, in the 50s and 60s. I just could not have imagined it. So in a way, my actual life is a bit like a fiction or an adventure. Nice. So it's literally kind of an adventure with ups and downs. It's like a, kind downs. of a superhero <laughs> story as well. We're facing difficulties in the beginning and then. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So let's assume it will be in the fiction section yeah. as well. Or maybe in both sections, you know, sometimes you can find books in multiple sections as well, in autobiography in your case, maybe, and as well in the fiction section. Um, and you will see your book right now yeah. in front of you. Mm -hmm. What do you, what, and you, you take the book and you hold it in front of you. What do you see on the cover? I, I see, um, light, I see brightness, I see color. Mm -hmm. I don't see anything uh, actually specific. It's sort of more abstract. Um, it, it's, it's light, color, brightness. Maybe in a spiral shape, Daniel. Mm -hmm. Perhaps. What does, what does brightness stands for you? What does it mean for you, brightness, when you say it's light, brightness, undercover? Yeah, brightness for me is life. It's, it's life energy. It's life force. Uh, you know, I, I'm using the word bright uh, instead of dark, you know? Uh -huh. So bright to me is energy, it's, it's vitality, and it's hope, and it's possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I remember a long time ago, you told me that, and also I saw, um, I discovered that in the research as well, that you, you once said that <clears throat> what motivates you, you said it's definitely about making a difference in people's mm. life. So is that something which brights you up 
in other words, you know, this kind of energy to see that you lit up a light. I think that's been a big motivation in my life, but I think a parallel motivation is, um, it's about trying new things, been open to possibility, saying yes. <laughs> When, when opportunities knock at my door and I'm curious about it and I'm, I'm excited about trying new things and, and discovering new stuff. It's interesting. And you said, yes. It's like new knowledge or new wisdom or new experience for me. So in other words, taking up the challenge, you know, you said on the adventure, you know, as you said, like open for adventures, open for new challenges, leaving the comfort zone. Yeah. That's interesting as well, yeah. When, when you have this cover in front of you, that uh, brightness is light. Um, and perhaps you can feel that energy as well. And you open the first page, you know, you open the cover. And usually in the book, you have kind of a thank you page as well. Yeah. Who do you think most in your life? Who would you dedicate that one book about you? Well, I have to dedicate it to the people I've traveled most of my time with. And, you know, my parents who are now dead, but they lived long lives into their 90s. So I, I just had the benefit of them for so long. So definitely my mom and dad, uh, my, my three children who are such a big part of my life. And very proud of, you know, who they have become. And of course, I have a grandson. So he's, mm. he's, my, he's my brightest star at the moment, my little Felix. <laughs> and I love his name, Felix. It means happiness, you know. Oh, Felix, oh, very nice. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, uh, my husband, Joe, who's my rock. So I think I have to put those people in my dedication yeah lovely um what would you say you have learned from these people who you think most what do you have what did you learn from them um i think i've learned different things you know from my parents i've learned to be a good person if you like i haven't always achieved that you know i'm <laughs> old <laughs> you know very important to have a moral compass to do the right thing you know uh, to work hard to have uh, you know an ethic that life didn't owe you a living you earned your living and i i think they were very formative lessons for me i think from my children i i learned unconditional love you know which is the most amazing thing once you become a parent and you bond with your children it is an overwhelming love because falling in love with someone is a great experience but again slightly different it comes with conditions mm. so that i think having children expanded me into that realm of unconditional love and mm. also having to you know 
puts other people completely before yourself. It's a kind of humbling experience, I think, when you become a parent. Mm. Um, and I think for Joe, uh, when I met Joe, and I'll tell that story later on, mm. it wasn't in the brightest part of my life. Mm. And I think Joe put the color back in for me. Absolutely. Mm. And, and, you know, we, we, we love little adventures. We, we often think at the weekend, you know, even if it's five kilometers up the road, what little adventure can we go on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the smallest adventure can be one of the biggest memories as well. You know, it doesn't have to be like big multi-day yeah. adventures. It can be just a walk. And yeah. then you turn that walk into an unforgettable memory. Um, oh. It's just very lovely. Yeah. Um, I want to state you an opinion from someone, and I'm very curious if you would know who that was who said that. Um, that person said, Linda has a healing nature. I have experienced calmness after a session with her like I have never experienced before. I hope to reach that level one day that just by being present with people, I can pass on such energy. Not sure if you know who I'm talking um, about. Um, I might it's, know. I might know. Um, it's touch points. Yeah, touch. it's touch point also what you said in the beginning, you know, that energy on the cover and you're passing yeah. on that energy. And it's a very interesting thing, Daniel. I mean, I don't call myself a healer. Um, but I, I see that more and more in the world, people need healing. And, you know, we all do. We need healing and we need love. Um, and not in the conventional sense of romance, you know. I think we need connection. And more and more in my work as a coach, and, I, you know, I've been an executive coach working in corporates, uh, for the last 20 years. So a lot of my work was very focused on, you know, strategic stuff, uh, how to improve the leadership in an organization, etc. But I would say more and more in the last three years, I have noticed whether I've shifted or my clients have shifted or we've all shifted. But even working in corporates now, it's so much more about the whole person. So I might have this CEO or COO in front of me. And yes, we're working on actual businessy stuff, if you like. But it's also about the person's own struggle. You know, their struggle to be that good leader, the struggle to be that person in their life. And, and this is where I find um, the healing energy and the unconditional positive regard energy, the, the trust, the safety that I try to create with people. And I'm doing that more and more. And I had two sessions yesterday, um, both with very strong professional women. And it was so moving that they 
both needed a, a different kind, some kind of healing actually. Mm. And I never thought that that was what I was doing when I was coaching. And maybe I was doing it implicitly before, but I think now maybe COVID, maybe the pandemic, this is the upside of it. Mm. That it's bringing up the human aspect, the vulnerability aspect. Mm. Would you say you discovered this more and more during COVID times? the last few months this this kind of um, personal struggle where people have at the workplace I think Daniel as I said I've noticed it maybe in the last three years mm. more, and more and I think the pandemic has just sharpened the lens you know the focus now And it kind of has legitimized that people have these struggles, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's kind of um, like the pandemic kind of uncovered yeah. a problem or uh, issue which actually existed for a long time. Kind of yeah. a carpet and you just take the carpet away and then you see all the dust and everything under the carpet. But it existed for a long time already. Yeah, interesting. Tommy, um, at one point in my life, I, I became a Reiki master. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in about 2002, mm -hmm. I needed something in my own life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, doctor heal thyself, you know, that same in English. So I, I turned to spirituality. I always had an interest in spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, but I really developed that aspect of my life because of, of a situation I'd gone through and I was looking for meaning, I was looking for answers, I was looking for support and I became the Reiki master, which is a form of energy healing, really. And I never practiced it professionally, Daniel, you know, I've always done it primarily for myself, healing myself, healing my family, sending healing energy to friends. But I'll tell you, in the last six months, <laughs> I've, since the pandemic, I've reconnected with that healing energy, you know, that I that was opened in me when I went through the process mm -hmm. with my Reiki master. And I've offered it to people in um, in coaching sessions. So I've been very explicit. I said, do you know, I, would you like to receive some Reiki healing, some energy healing? I explained to them and everybody has said yes. <laughs> so I kind of now I'm incorporating if the client needs it and wants it into my work. Mm. Which again, I think I wouldn't have done that uh, two years ago. I would have kept everything more separate. Yes. You know? So mm -hmm. what I see is happening maybe with the pandemic too, is that we're becoming more holistic in thinking, integrating different disciplines. I think we're going to emerge from this <laughs> a different society. We have to emerge from this a different society. 
Definitely, yes. And it's interesting that you, you talked about Reiki. Um, just a couple of days ago, I saw kind of a, you know, this kind of poster you see at the traffic light, you know, like free Reiki or free courses or et cetera, you know, language course. And I saw the other day, like a poster about Reiki as well, like uh, for 10 euros. Um, I took a picture because I, I know also from the previous conversation that you also did that uh, Reiki as well in the past. And I thought like, that's interesting that, that there's this urge now, this need for mm. this kind of different, I would, I would call it now energy healing, as you said, you know, for people who currently know that this is not a situation where they, mm. you know, see that light in the end of the tunnel, you know, it's a permanent. And, and the thing that which I love about Reiki and where it also has a similar energy to coaching, because, you know, in non-directive coaching, as coaches, we don't give advice or direction. Our, our clients, we enable our clients to find their own answers, their own solutions. Mm -hmm. And Reiki, it is about the healer helps the person align their chakras, which are like their spiritual skeleton, for want of a better word. And the healing is activated by the person themselves. So again, it's quite... I think both modalities are very empowering in that sense. It's not like it's been done to you. Coaching isn't done to you. Reiki isn't done to you. It's with you. Mm -hmm. I think, um, and that's something also would I would very lovely, uh, very interested to explore more further later. I think, as you say, like the answer is always in us, and we just have to uncover it as well. Um, I think. Um, it's also with this with Reiki as well. Um, but let me let me go back first to the book because I'm very, very curious if I now have that book in the hand and I see that thank you page mm. and I flip over to the chapters table of content. What would I see in the first chapter? What yeah. would I read in the first chapter? I kind of was having a bit of a think of that this morning over my cup of tea on the balcony. And I thought I would call my first chapter The Safe Harbor. The Safe Harbor. Mm -hmm. And for me, that chapter is my childhood, my teenage years, up until, you know, 21. Um, it's about, you know, I, I had a very traditional, stable middle class uh, childhood in Ireland, which, you know, really was a blessing in retrospect. Going through it, I didn't realize what a gift I had, you know, that I, my parents were, were really good people. Um, you know, we, we had all our basic necessities. In Ireland in the 60s, 70s, it wasn't a rich country, even if you had a good job, you know, there weren't mm. luxuries, but I had everything I needed. You know, we had a nice home, we had good food, we had education, and they were the priorities. But also we had freedom. I mean, as a child, we roamed the fields, the beaches, the hills, the streets, you just came home to be fed, you know, and um, mm. 
completely different way of living. It was very safe, mm -hmm. very safe. So, you know, those years are very happy years, you know, as I look back and, and more and more through my work, as I realize other people haven't always had uh, that stability, you know, and how that impacts on them later on. I'm, I'm eternally grateful uh, to be born into that family, in that place, in that time. Now, was it perfect, Daniel? No. I mean, it's interesting too, you know, as I say, my parents were really great people, but they were products of their time. So one of the things, you know, in Ireland, uh, you, you didn't praise a child too much because the big fear was that the child would get a big head. That was considered the worst thing that you could have in Irish society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe looking back on it, were there things I would, yes, I might have loved to have been maybe praised or cuddled more, you know. But yes. my mother did love me. She didn't have time to sit. She had four small children. I was the eldest. She couldn't have us all on her knee. She was doing hand washing. She was, you know, preparing meals from scratch. The life was so, it was hands on in those days. So, you know, there were times maybe I felt my parents were too strict on me. You know, they wouldn't allow me go to the dances. I wanted to go with my friends when I was a teenager and they wouldn't let me. I don't know what they were afraid of. Maybe they thought I was going to be too wild or something. Okay. But overall, overall, it was, it was a safe harbor. I mean, it, it, it I think it set me up for life. But what mm. an interesting thing, and, and it was again, because I knew this was coming up, it was making me think back. And a very interesting thing is my mother had four children, but before me, the firstborn was a boy. And he, sadly, he only lived for 10 days. He, neonatal death, I'm not sure why. And that really affected my mother. And she couldn't speak about that till she was in her 70s. And I think, I grew up always thinking I was the eldest. And this is an interesting thing in my psyche, but I was not the eldest, I was the second child. Mm -hmm. And she was always anxious, anxious, even though I say we did roam because all the children roamed, but she always had a certain anxiety because of that. And because she was never got counseling in those days and I never had anything like that. You just didn't speak about it, you got on with it, it was God's will. You know, that was the thing. And um, I think with me, she was always trying to protect me. When I look back, a lot of what it was, was keep Linda safe, keep Linda safe. Mm -hmm. and there was thing in Linda that didn't want that. Mm -hmm. I was I quite um, in a soft way. I never rebelled openly, but I always did what I wanted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that, that shaped me because that has made me to this day, I won't follow the crowd. I am quite an independent thinker, mm -hmm. but not in that sort of in your face way, but I definitely make up my mind and I do what I want.
Mhm, interesting. Um, you mentioned that first chapter from your childhood and teenage age till age 21. Um, do you remember a specific situation, occasion, maybe in your teenage or in a, in a childhood with, which perfectly describes you? Maybe starting from the childhood where you would say, hmm, this was so typical me. Um, situation, I say, hmm, this was me when I was young. Do you remember any? I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I think with my, <clears throat> my, my brothers, I was always, because uh, I was the eldest in mm -hmm. the family, I was the only girl. I was uh, kind of in charge of the brothers that came later. Okay. So I, I always remember my next brother to me, he didn't learn to speak, you know, till maybe he was three or four. <clears throat> and uh, he would just grunt. So I would say, mom, he wants a biscuit or a cookie, as Americans might say, he wants a cookie. And she'd And then I'd, he'd go, uh -uh. I'd say, no, he wants butter on it or he wants jam on it. So I always was like that. I think I was the communicator in the family. I think I was the, the sort of supporter. Um, and, and I was also a little bossy because I love the power of being the oldest sister. Interesting, <laughs> I okay. Them, tell them what to do. And, and I remember the day I got married when I was 21 and my younger brothers all said, thank God she's left the house now. <laughs> <laughs> she's always talking and she's always telling us what to do. <laughs> so it's interesting as, as a coach. Yes. I've had to, I've had to let that, that go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also interesting when you say you know you were kind of the communicator as well um, or translator you know you were reading between the lines of what your brothers needed and then you kind of translated that communicated further yeah. maybe yeah. also kind of a starting point of a coaching you know you read between the lines uh, yeah the unspoken you know often the, Daniel we talk about listening for the unspoken wish Exactly. <laughs> I was doing that before. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I have a one 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 aspect which interests interests me really when we talk about this. Also includes the teenage age. What yes. in what subjects were you interested in as a teenager in school? Um, well, yeah. Do you mean school subjects? School subjects. Yes. Yeah. I, I love school. I was a bit of a swat. I always enjoyed school. I, went, okay. you know, I, I grew up in Holy Catholic Ireland, as we call it. So all our schools were religious schools. So the girls went to the, the nuns and the boys went to the priests. So my nuns um, were Dominican nuns. And they were very ahead of their time, Daniel. I know nowadays people often speak badly of, of the nuns, but I can only say good things because they were the first feminist. And you said I have this great um, interest in women's empowerment. And I'm telling you, 
from when I entered, you know, that school till the day I left at 17, we were all to have a career ambition. Nobody was allowed to say, well, I'm going to just do this for two years, then get married and have children. No, we were all to go and get a further education, which was unusual for women at that time. We were all put, according to our abilities, we would get further training or education. We were to have a career. And I'll never forget it, but in, my, in school, I loved English. I loved English literature. I think that gave me my joy of books and theater. I loved history. I actually did history then in my BA. I went on and did a BA with my first degree uh, in history and French, and I loved French. Um, so initially at school, I was perhaps more a humanities person. You know, I loved the humanities and I loved in school the extracurriculars when we would have to perform. I was always the one to put my hand up. I loved um, I loved being in plays. I loved being in the choir. I loved entertaining. Um, I really enjoyed that. I was hopeless at sports. I hated I never put my hand up for the hockey team. I hated that. <laughs> no, just what it, yeah, go ahead. And why did I hate it, Daniel? I'll confess. If I'm not good at something, I've very poor hand-eye coordination. I mentioned before that my eyesight has always been a little dodgy, a bit weak. So my hand-eye coordination isn't good. Therefore, I've never been a natural sports person. So if I'm not good at something, I've no interest in it. <laughs> Interesting. So you, you, at that age, you were already, would you say you would, you were competitive? <clears throat> I'm competitive well, myself. I've never okay. been a competitor with anybody else. I mean, I never look to see what anyone else is achieving in life. I just compete with myself. Can I do better? Can I do more? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the only reference is yourself and yeah. how you can improve yeah. yourself. Yeah, interesting. Um, your touch point, what happened at age 21? Your marriage already. Yeah. So yeah. when the chapter is about Linda um, in her childhood and teenage age, kind of the communicator as well, and, you know, reading between the lines and, mm. Tell me what what is before I go actually on on, on, on chapter uh, on the second chapter. Um, what happened in the end of the first chapter uh, when you say uh, the marriage? After uh, <clears throat> I, I left school at seventeen, I had finished all my exams and I went to university, University College Dublin. I did a, a BA in French and history. And then I went on and I did a higher postgraduate diploma in education because my dream, as I said, I was a SWAT, I loved school. And all I could mm -hmm. think of was to be a teacher too because I had so many great teachers. So that was my original plan was to be a French and history teacher. And that's what I did. And when I was 15 and eventually allowed out, but I had to be home at 10 o'clock, Daniel, um, I met my future first husband, Tony, when I was 15, 
and um, you know we we got engaged when I graduated from university from with my BA at 20 and we got married when I was 21 and he was 24 so that kind of that's why that chapter of my life ends there and you know I lived at home until I got married it's the way in those days you know and women uh, girls unless you lived in the country then then you would travel to Dublin for work or college and you'd live away from home but my family lived in Dublin so you know the expectation is you would stay there till you got married mm. interesting so chapter two would start with a marriage it's yeah what is the so, what is the name of that chapter I'm curious I I'm keeping on, you, you'll see my theme. So safe harbor, I'm calling this one setting sail. Because nice. I think, and again, I was reflecting on this, that <clears throat> this is really my journey into adulthood. Um, so a lot of people would have left college, you know, left education and started a career and then maybe entered into marriage and then down the line into parenthood or whatever. But for me, it was kind of all happened at once. So I got married in the August of, of the, that year and we had a house. Imagine, I didn't know how we afforded to buy this house with a mortgage, of course, but it's house prices have escalated so much in Ireland now that two people with massive salaries can't even afford to buy a house. But back then, my husband could get a mortgage because he was the only one working. I was the student and we moved 20 miles from where I'd been living. So that was a big thing, you know, just the, the running a house and having to think about shopping and cooking. I mean, I hadn't a clue, not a clue. And we'd both be saying, how long does it take a cabbage to cook or something like this? And, um, so there was no transition period for you to actually learn all this. It's like being thrown in the cold water. <laughs> I anything, as, as moms did back then, you know. So we had no furniture. We had the money to buy the house, but it was very sparsely furnished and everything you know but we didn't mind because nobody else really had very much and and we had, we were so kind of happy together it was cute it was really cute um and then I was working I got a, a temporary job I couldn't get the teaching job Daniel that I'd always dreamt of because there was a, an economic recession in the late 70s in Ireland which meant most of our teachers are public service schools you know are hired by the government so there was no hiring so couldn't get a teaching job which kind of broke my heart my dream but I am adaptable and I went for an interview and it was more kind of an admin type job but I needed it and it was 40 pounds a week I can remember and I just jumped at it wow. and I talked about how to do everything I told them at the interview I could work a switchboard I told them I could work at a typewriter I mean I'm talking way back <laughs> 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 no, no anyway yes. I, got in, I got 
got the job. So I had to, so this is why I call this setting sail. So mm -hmm. this period of my life, I was getting used to what was it to be a homemaker, you know, to be a wife. What was it to be a career person, you know, having to get up every day and go to work and see where I could, what I could make out of this. And then uh, eventually uh, settle into parenthood. Um, so we, we had made a choice not to have children immediately because I think we recognized that we were very young and financially not in a great place. And, and, you know, we wanted to do a bit of travel as well. So I didn't have my first child till I was 27. And by that time, uh, I'd had about three promotions. I, the job I, I got this admin position in, it was um, a state agency for tourism development, which is a fantastic industry. If ever you worked in the tourism sector, best people, most dynamic industry. And um, because of my education background, um, they wanted people who could develop, do curriculum development for national level programs for the tourism sector to professionalize it. So I really found my feet in this company. I ended up having gone in as an admin. I stayed 17 years and I left there as quite a senior manager. Uh, having traveled the world for them, having seen the explosion of Irish tourism through EU money. But my goodness, it was a fantastic place to work. Um, and I had my three children during that 17 years that I was with them. So I always was a working mom. I was juggling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> juggling everything and it was at a time to be honest where most women would give up after the first once they had the second baby that was mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. because it became a struggle society didn't always approve of that and I think again this was my independence I thought I love work I, I'm, I'm good at this you know I love it I love my kids too but I want to keep both going and I did it was at times my husband was fantastic he had a very busy job too but really shared everything we shared the childcare, we shared the housework we shared the food shopping whatever the cooking it was good it was a good time and um you know then kind of coming to the end and at that time too i went back and did my master's i did an mbs and I did that part-time while I was working full-time with three children. Again, <laughs> I had great energy. I was always blessed with good health, great energy, and focus. But it also and shows that you, you wanted to prove that it works, you know, raising three kids while yeah. also maintaining all your income. It seems like um, you wanted to prove yourself as well, not necessarily following what the community or society says that um, yeah. it's not possible. Absolutely, you know, and mm. I remember those years because um, now my employer was very good. They they gave me a scholarship for that master's, mm -hmm. uh, which was, it was kind of like a bonus, I suppose I got for my, for the work I did for them. And they would release me two half days a week to attend the college. 
But then I had all my study to do. So I, I used to sit at my kitchen table with all the books because we weren't online then. It was all mm -hmm. books, handwritten assignments. And I would do that and my children would have the telly on and the, I'd have the dinner on the stove and a little one at my feet because I felt I couldn't go upstairs where we had a little study because I, I felt a little guilty, you know, the guilt of the working mother, we carry that all the time. But, you know, I got that. And again, being competitive with myself, I said, what happened was when I got my first results, I did very well. I got like an A. So then I said, I can keep this up. And I, mm -hmm. I eventually pushed myself till I got a first class honors in that. And what I realized too was, do you remember I said at school, I loved humanities. I thought I couldn't do maths. I thought I wasn't an analytical person. When I did the, the master's in business studies, I realized that actually I can understand economics. I can, can be quantitative. And that again was a great thing. That was a great thing. So this chapter was sort of setting sail, discovering new facets of life uh, through parenthood, through being a wife, uh, through different career successes, through extra education. Mm -hmm. And then not all goes the way you think it's going to go. Mm. When <laughs> That's you... where this chapter ends. Yeah, when you when you said you you're calling this chapter two um, setting sail, um, usually when people are setting the sails, they have a clear or more or less a rough understanding what direction they're sailing to. At that time, did you know where you're sailing to? Not really. I knew all I knew, Daniel was. I, I want to go forward in life. I'm not staying in the harbor. I knew I knew I was never going to stay in the harbor and conform. <laughs> and I knew I wanted there was a sea out there. There was different islands and lands out there. And I knew I would find the right ones for me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would have to work for it. I, I knew I would have to prove myself. But I was quite, and I think this has been a, a pattern in my life. I, 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 it's not that I don't have a plan. I have a plan to move forward, a plan to make a difference, you know, mm -hmm. a plan to connect, a plan yes. to find opportunities, but I never have the detail of what that is. So not moving forward with a tunnel view, but with an open view. But definitely knowing that you're not going backwards, but always one step ahead, kind of mindset. Yeah. And I feel, you know, when you set sail and, and you, you stock up your boat, you know, I, I had good people around me. I had, I had uh, you know, good health. I had good education. I, I had good skills. I had a good work ethic. I had what I needed on that boat. It wasn't, it wasn't a foolish thing that I went with nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yes. And that I would think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
You said you worked 17 years uh, for the tourism in the tourism sector in the Irish tourism sector, and also like you know, I think at that time, correct me if I'm wrong, Ireland also joined the EU at that time, around yeah. that time, and then you know it maybe you know uh, the tourism yeah. industry itself. Yeah. The, the, once we join the EU, and that's why I'm very much, and most people in Ireland, we are Europeans, Daniel, we feel Europeans, because we're a small island on the edge of Europe, we need to connect, we need to see the bigger picture, we do not want to be isolationist, mm. and the EU invests heavily, in but every grant that we got I can tell you it was put to good use in Ireland. You see now, if you visit the road structure, the way our farming sector has developed, our agri-food sector has developed, our tourism product is fantastic. And we have used that money very, very wisely and we're very grateful for it. And I'm sure a lot of it came from Germany at the time because, mm. you know, the net investors were Germany and France, you know. Um, but our economy then bounced, you know, we were one of the bo most booming economies in, in, uh, by the end of the 90s in Europe. Mm. When you, you also say that, you know, you traveled around the world during that time, you saw the, the world with different eyes. Um, what made, what did you learn about yourself during this time of travel around the world? Um, I learned that I can adapt. I learned that I can relate to people of different cultures. And even when I don't speak their language, and they don't speak mine, that I can form a relationship. And maybe that goes back to the story I told you with my brother and the cookie. <laughs> but um, I also learned that I'm very resilient because I'll give you an example now. I was sent by the Irish government in 1999, um, the, the Berlin Wall had come down. Mm -hmm. The Baltic states uh, were trying to develop, okay? And an area that they thought they could develop was tourism. So because of my background in developing tourism education in particular, uh, the, the Irish government made by a, a, a grant aid to Latvia initially and said, Linda McLaughlin, go to Riga, set up a tourism school there. So I arrived in Riga and uh, let's say I wasn't quite prepared for the post-Soviet situation in those poor countries, you know, uh, but I, I found my way and I worked in the all Baltic states then. I traveled extensively because we got EU money then off the back of the investment that the Irish government put in. We got EU money to develop tourism in Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia. And I, I was a consultant there for about six years, traveling back and forth, seeing the evolution of those societies. Mm. But that was, that was mind blowing. And I mean, I could get access to ministers. I could just say, uh, I'm here representing the EU. I'm here for the, uh, representing the Irish government. I need to speak to the Minister for Education. I need to speak for the Minister of Industry, whatever. Uh, which I could never have access like that in Ireland. You know, <laughs> they'd look at me, who are you? Um, 
So that was very empowering, very empowering. Um, I also traveled to Africa at that time. Uh, again, another Irish government uh, initiative where we had close links with Zambia and uh, Zambian government was in crisis. I mean, the World Bank were about to close it down. You know, it was, it was a completely failed economy. And they were trying to reform the government. And so myself with a team of about three others were sent by the Irish government to help do change management within the ministries in Zambia. So Africa is a completely new experience. You know, uh, the white woman in Africa, you know, but it was just wonderful because it, it, it makes you realize what advantages maybe we have had Mm. Others who are equally educated and equally able haven't had. It's mm. a, the inequality of the world. Yes. And also just the beauty, the beauty of Africa. I think Africa has to be one of the most stunning places I've ever been. Mm. Definitely. You, you said equality as well. I mean, you are a great advocate of uh, diversity and equity as well in the workplace, um, as, especially all around women as well, reaching the seal level, as you said. Um, and you said, you know, strong women inspire you a lot or to encourage women to be stronger than they actually believe in themselves. Um, at that time, saw yourself also as someone to give women more self-confidence Uh, while you were traveling to different parts of the world, maybe, you know, after the Berlin Wall uh, fell down, I mean, these countries, they were more struggling with themselves, but maybe it was also an opportunity for women to, to, to see a different image from themselves, or same also maybe in Africa. Did you see when you traveled to these different countries an opportunity also to empower women? It's very interesting, Daniel, because it's, it's cultural, you know, in Africa, when you look in Africa, and this is just my opinion, women have tremendous power in Africa. There are very few social restrictions on women, mm -hmm. as I discovered in Zambia and Zimbabwe, the main countries I went to. Um, because women are the workers, uh, the, the, the men have a different role in those societies. It's not necessarily going out to work. <laughs> yes. uh, so women actually, in, in some respects, probably had more freedoms, in some ways, more freedoms than Western women. So I don't want to say, oh, I, I was the Western woman bringing empowerment to those women. Those women were well-educated, very capable, hardworking, keeping their families going from what I could see. Equally, when I went into the Baltic states after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet system saw all people as economic cogs in the wheel. So they didn't really differentiate, in my view, between men and women. So all people worked, all women went out to work You know, it wasn't, the luxury of being a housewife wasn't really there in those societies. This is my view. <laughs> Now, there may have been an issue that the women weren't always paid as much as the men, or they may not have been given the same promotional um, 
opportunities, you know. But every we have to we have to travel the world to understand the position of women. But overall, I I am disappointed on this topic. As I say, I have been in the workforce for four decades now. And I marched on the streets in the 70s for women's rights. Um, I've been very active in the trade union movement in Ireland, especially around the women's um, empowerment agenda. I even had a company called Top Women, Top Jobs for a while. Mm, interesting. Which was dedicated to women's empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I think in 40 years, we've not made the progress. In, in, certainly in the West. Mm -hmm. um, and I begin to wonder and I begin to think about the power elites. And I begin to think, I just meet so many fabulous people, men and women, but I meet a lot of fabulous women. And I still don't understand why we're not represented equally. I only am talking equal. I don't want women to take over the world. I just want equal representation, equal pay, equal opportunity. Because I believe, and I'm on my soapbox here now, you'll have to stop me. But I believe that diversity is where we will get the best decisions and the best society. Because for too long, all the big decisions that governments, big corporations have been taken by almost exclusively the male perspective. And that's not serving us anymore. The world is changing. The world is crying for change. Look at climate. Look at what's happening with the climate crisis yes. everywhere. So it, let's, but an interesting thing, why do you think like with all the yes. law of the EU, with all the legislation there, mm. it's a topic I could talk with you forever because it's also a topic for me, um, even from a man's perspective, which I I hugely, hugely want to you know focus on and to ex exactly like you also explore. I mean, diversity, equality, uh, also women at workplace. It's a topic I would love to talk with you forever. But what I realized the last four years, I mean, I, I mean, it's it's also very fragile. What I realized, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, in, in a German uh, government uh, debate about how can we, you know, increase the diversity. And, and I heard that, you know, even the small successes which were reached in some of the parties, you know, maybe 30%, 40. Over the last two years, it got reduced again. You know, it's very fragile. Even the small successes, maybe three, four years ago, can be gone very quickly. And, and this is, I think, one of the areas where we have to be careful as well, that the small successes and equality as well in a workplace, for example, can are only as successful if they stay and not like for one, two, three, four years. Um, but also at the same time, I feel like, you know, equality at the workplace doesn't only, and that's only my personal opinion, not only re requires to empower women, but also to educate men. It's a both world side. You know, you cannot increase that empowerment on the women and they are 
like very energetic and so on when you not educate the man or actually when i say educate help them to understand it's a new transition period um it's both worlds i believe will need to be focused on when you want to really take equality serious um and um it's again depends of you know when you say western world uh, it's again very depends on the on the culture itself yeah yeah it's uh, as you say it's a hot topic and i i so agree with you i think we shouldn't frame it as women's issues you know or women's empowerment or women's equality it's just equality full stop mm. it is a social challenge and it is a corporate challenge the government challenge and diversity is the way to go sure linda tell me first chapter setting the sail i uh, know second chapter sorry <laughs> setting the sail what do i read in the third chapter the third chapter each of those ones have been about 20 years two decades so the next one is called stormy water and that is a shorter chapter probably about a four or five year chapter and it's where my <clears throat> husband was diagnosed with terminal kidney cancer he was only in his 40s very fit fully healthy person so this diagnosis just came out of the blue um, and you know within six months he had passed away so you can imagine um, a just going through that um as you know for him he he found it very hard to accept he would die and leave behind his family and everything it, it just he never accepted it actually which also made it very difficult for me because um we weren't able to bring in the hospice care because he knew if he, if the palliative came in he was admitting if he allowed palliative in he was admitting he was dying so we we kept him at home and you know it was my great wish he would die in his own bed and and my wish was granted because i just didn't want the impersonal feeling of a hospital if we could avoid it and we were able to um and then it was kind of the effect on my children losing their father who was such a devoted loving presence in their life and just the whole effect uh was devastating and yet um and yet you know the show had to go on we we had to get up and we had to go i had to go to work i was now the main wage earner uh my children had to go to school and you know finish what they were doing so it was they weren't great years and you know learning to be alone learning to have the full responsibility um learning to cope with grief uh all of this was extraordinarily difficult and then also you realize that some some of your closest friends can't really deal with your grief or can't be with you uh for whatever reason um and and again it was at that time 
I think I had to reinvent myself and I had to uh, develop a lot of new friendships, um, new, new ways of socializing, you know, because I was now kind of this single woman. I didn't fit into the suburban life that I'd had. Um, so this was a kind of stormy part, I think, for lots of reasons. Mm. You said that this chapter is around four to five years. Um, and you're also saying that you have to re reinvent yourself. Um, was that a slow transition for you? Mm -hmm. uh, where you realized you had to not just accept the situation, but also change yourself uh, or reinvent, as you say, so that you can yeah. move on? I think it was gradual, you know, Daniel. And this was when I, I began that spiritual search that I mentioned earlier. You know, I was looking for answers. I was looking for help, deep help, um, just to get through each day, just to make sense of it, just to feel at one with myself because it, it threw me off center. And, um, so I think as you work through grief, you know, sure you, you may have experienced grief in your life and you know you go through denial and anger and, and the pit where you just feel there's no hope, it's dark, you know, um, and then you move to acceptance. And I think once I got to acceptance and then I began to say, well, what can I do now? What, 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 what can I do to make this work for me? That's when I began the change, you know, uh, but it takes time. I mean, I think even to get through grief initially, it's going to take a minimum of two years, probably longer. And <clears throat> what happened also in that time, when I think back, so my husband dies in July. In August, my father-in-law, his father, is also diagnosed with cancer, and he dies eight months later. Just as we had buried him, my mother-in-law, my husband's mother, late husband's mother, is diagnosed with breast cancer. So this was, and I was very close with them, because remember, I met my husband when I was 15. So they were like a second family, you know. Mm. Um, and it was kind of that moment when you thought, what next? <laughs> like this faith I had, you know, when I said I would always feel I could set sail. I could set sail in my boat and I felt I'd be okay. I'm telling you, in that moment, I knew what it was like to be out at sea and not be okay. <laughs> Mm. You know, I felt like, oh, should I sink the ship here or should I bring it back and tie it up? <clears throat> mm. You know, I, I kind of, I lost that. I did momentarily lose that belief. Mm. Well, um, and you said it also, like, what can I do in that situation? I mean, it's, it's these questions where you then 
force yourself also to come up with answers, which you don't know if that's the right response to it, because you can't prepare for something like this. And I think no one can prepare for something like this. As you say, like, it's not just one person who left. It's like, it was a series of people who left step by step. Mm -hmm. And that's something, you know, where you feel like, you know, you overcome something, another setback comes in. And then you... You know, maybe you kind of recovered in, in, a, in a little mm-hmm. bit recovered in a sense, but then another, you know, when you're already still on the ground, another uh, punch hits you. And then, you know, for some people, they, they might not stand up afterwards because it's maybe too much, too many mm-hmm. setbacks in a row, in a, you know, in that short time period. So going back to that, when you say, you know, on the boat, I mean, it's, it's this kind of firefighting mode as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would say, you know, for those first two years, I didn't sleep more than three or four hours at night. Really? Wow. It impacted my sleep pattern, um, which was tough because I was, wor- you know, I, I had all the responsibility as a parent and a homemaker. I was still trying to do all the normal things with the kids, you know, the birthday parties, the the summer clubs, you know, taking them here and there, excuse me, and a very, very busy job. So, yeah, and and I just found I didn't sleep very well. I I can remember, yeah, this is where I needed all my Reiki. I needed to call in my angels. I love angels, by the way, Daniel. I always feel my guardian angels are around me. I was constantly calling them. <laughs> and maybe, yes. maybe, maybe my angels kind of got me through it. Um, and then there is healing. I think that the human being has huge capacity to heal, to adapt. And eventually that all happened. That all happened. And actually, the next phase of my life um, has been so expanded. It has been even more than the earlier years, which were great. My earlier years were great. I'm so thankful. But the last, you know, the last 20 years have been phenomenal. So, Linda, tell me, when you say the last 20 years were phenomenal, tell me yeah. what happened afterwards. Um, I well, assume it's, it will be chapter four. Chapter four, yeah. It's, it's maybe the last 15 years. Sorry, I, I, I got my maths wrong. Um, <laughs> I, call this, I call this chapter Discovering New Lands because mm-hmm. literally it was more travel, more travel than ever. And it was a a kind of a country relocation. (laughs) But I think it was also metaphorically discovering new lands. I I, I changed my mindset. Um, I changed my career. I I remarried. um, Tried a number of new jobs in that 15 years. And it's just been amazing. It's been an amazing 15 years so this relocation that discovering new land would you say that was needed in order to also reinvent yourself 
was the discovery there that once I got over the grief and I just got my faith back, you know, my faith in the process of life, I just stabilized is all I would say. I got to a point of stabilizing. And somehow, bit by bit, my curiosity, my ability to take on a challenge, my ideas, you know, my energy came back. And that's when, you know, again, no plan. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened then, Daniel? 2004, I go to Hungary to present research on public leadership because uh, at this time I had left the tourism sector. I'm working in leadership development for the Institute of Public Administration in Ireland, doing flagship programs for senior public servants. So I had gathered research on leadership behaviors during reform processes in government. Go to Budapest to present my paper. And I remember arriving there, it was a very academic conference, and I had I'd been to many conferences, but more practitioner-based. This was the first really academic one. And I, I really felt out of place, to be honest. And I remember going to the, you know, the opening party they have, and I didn't know anybody. And I'm standing there on my own, and I thought, oh, Linda, just go back to your hotel. And they all had badges with doctor so-and-so on it. And I just had my master's. I didn't have a doctor's. And you know, you go to that place and oh, I'm not as good as them. And um, I thought, I, and then I thought I, that grip came back. I said, don't be silly. Just go and talk to somebody. The connection in me came out. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, left or right? So I said, I'll go right. And there were a group of four men there. And I, I just sort of walked up and introduced myself. We were made small talk. And throughout that conference, one of those men kept, kept bumping into him every time I came out of the lift, every time I went for coffee, every time I, I, I sat on a bench in the street, he passed by. It was like the angel, something happened. And this person was my now husband, Joe. <laughs> so. Joe and I began talking, and as it turned out, he was a researcher. He's a real academic. He's a proper academic. He'd written many books on public leadership. And we began to do joint research. He was based in the United Arab Emirates. He just arrived here at the American University of Sharjah. I was still in Dublin bringing up my children. And we began researching together, and we, we've done books together on, on public leadership. And uh, then the romance developed and um, it was long distance for a long time because I couldn't commit to engagements or marriage or anything like that till my children, you know, were all done for. I wanted to see my kids educated into the workforce, independent. So in 2012, I met him in 2004 and, you know, things were just kind of going along gently. And in 2012, we remarried, I remarried. Uh, and I moved out uh, to Sharjah, near Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. And I had a job at the American University of Sharjah, where he worked as well. And I, uh, my job there was to set up the career service in the business school to do placement and careers. And again, I was able to use my coaching, particularly career coaching at that time. So I was there for six years. So I found myself you know, the discovering new lands. A, I was in Middle East, which I never planned. 
I was working in academia, which I never planned. And, you know, and I was remarried, which I'd never planned. <laughs> so um, that was that. But I should have said before I left, you know, I met, I bumped into Joe, my first introduction to Joe in 2004 in Hungary. Um, but in 2006, and my husband, had, my first husband had died in 2000. It, six years later, I took a very bold decision. And that decision was to leave my permanent pensionable, well-paid, prestigious job and set up my own business. And I did that in 2006. So that was another kind of discovering new lands, what it was like to be an entrepreneur, what it was like to be self-sufficient. And I discovered, I just loved it. I loved the nylon boss. Loved, loved, loved it. And, and great opportunities came my way. Yeah. And, and in most of my business in those years, I never had, I, I had savings because knowing I had the family commitment, I had savings to keep them going, but I never had to touch them. And I got lots of business from senior women, senior women. We networked mm -hmm. and we, we created value for each other. And it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. Years ago, when I first met you, I mean, we met each other at, uh, at American University of Sharjah as well at Shira, and I remember very, very well, and I don't know why, but now after knowing you a little bit more, I know why. Um, it was around two years ago, you know, when we just, uh, I think, met in the morning very briefly at AUS, and you said one sentence to me, which I, for some reason I kept in my mind, you said, you know, going self-employed was one of the best steps in my life. It was one of the very best. And you said it in a way where you spoke from your inner heart, you truly from your heart. Not just, you know, self-employment is great, it's, you know, brings you freedom, etc. No, you spoke from a different place in your heart. And it felt also that you not just say that you love self-employment, but also that what you're currently doing or since that time you you see yourself more in just doing the work you so see yourself also on a mission uh, on, a, on a kind of a purpose as you say like you know perhaps motivating also senior or women in a leadership positions um, which kind of encourage you on a daily basis to stand up and to to keep going <laughs> and i found that very interesting like two years ago when you told me this because that is you know, no, not everyone is telling me that from that different, that, that part of the heart. Yeah, and, and what happened then, Daniel, was, as you know, I went to AUS and I, I think I was there five or six years. Mm -hmm. But the yearning for that self-direction, that autonomy, I think it's autonomy. That's the thing about self-employment that I really love. And I missed, I so missed uh, that. And I, I, I resigned from my job at AUS, mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, it was, a, it was a good job, a good package. I just thought, no, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to retire out of here. That was my fear that I'd actually retire out of a job that I wasn't 100% passionate about. And um, so, 
I went back into self-employment in um, 2017. Mm -hmm. So I've been reconnected. I had my own company kind of in the background, just ticking over. So mm -hmm. I reconnected that. And um, again, it was a fresh, it was like discovering a new land because although I had the experience of being self-employed in Ireland, I had a very strong network in Ireland. You know, I, I had been working since 21 there. I knew a lot of people, a lot of people knew me. Um, going self-employed in the Gulf was slightly different. I had been here five or six years. I had made some good contacts, but my network was nothing as strong as it had been in Ireland. But surprisingly, it's really worked out. It's really worked out and I'm thankful. Thankful to all the clients who reached out for me and worked with me and it's just been great. And I haven't looked, I have not looked back since the day I left AUS, but it's been the same everywhere I've ever left. I never looked back after the day I left Port Ireland, the tourism agency. I never looked back after the day I left the IPA in Dublin. That never, yeah, it's looking forward. That's the brightness that on yes. the cover of my the forward. So the, the, the light where you're seeing, you're walking towards the light, as closer you are towards the light, as more energy you get as well. Um, you said, you, you, you know, the self-employment, I mean, really um, where you decided to go to 2016. Um, but you have coached beforehand, that's correct? I mean, coaching was a big part of your life many years beforehand yeah i started coaching 18 19 years ago when i moved to the institute of public administration and mm -hmm. i was doing leadership development with senior public servants a lot of our programs included 360 feedback which was back in the day was quite new and sexy you know and it would include uh, what we were calling coaching sessions mm -hmm. and I have to say, there was no coach training in Ireland at that time. I mean, it wasn't seen as a profession very much. Uh, like the I ICF now, the leading world body on coaching is only 25 years ago. So put it in context. So 19, 20 years ago on coaching, um, it just intuitively. And I see how well it's working, particularly with senior people that they have that confidential space to really explore what's meaningful to them. So I got the bug then. I wasn't doing it full time. I was doing it as part of training and mentoring and other things I was doing. And once I left the IPA and I was self-employed, the first thing I did was invest in coach training. It had now come to Ireland. I did an amazing 25-day uh, program, never look back started my credentialing journey with the ICF. Now I am a master coach. I'm at the, you know, 4% of coaches in the world are masters. I, I, that again was a personal goal of mine, just a personal thing I want to do to feel fulfilled. And, um, you know, I also want to give back now and I, I'm giving back in terms of you know, being on the board of the International Coaching Federation, I've been elected by the members to represent them in terms of strategic uh, future of the profession. And yeah, coaching is kind of my main thing now. 
Mm. I mean, you. Found you know. happy place. <laughs> Go ahead. Second. I found my happy place, and I found my tribe when I found coaching. <laughs> yes, I mean, everyone who probably speaks with you can also see that kind of brightness coming out of you that you found your place as well, that the right environment where you will shine from the inside out. I mean, you've been uh, uh, honored as well by the ICF Ireland um, to become a uh, 2017 Mentor Coach of the Year as well. I mean, it was just shortly after you really decided to, to found Leadership Works International 2016. Yeah. So how did it, what did you, how did you feel at that time, you know, like one year where you decided to really take it, take that journey, take that boat in a serious water and then one year later you got that recognition being the mentor yeah, of the year it was you know people ask me that because let me think it was 2017 i got 2017 i got top coach of the year award from icf ireland and mentor coach of the year icf ireland award and they were really meaningful for me because it's, you know, it's like the Oscars of coaching. It's your peers. Yes. Your peers decide. And interestingly, I, I had been nominated for the mentor coach role. And when they, I, they announced that first, and I was so thrilled to be the recipient, you know, because obviously it's a competition and judges adjudicate and the members adjudicate. And I was so happy. I remember walking back to the, the table. It was a gala dinner and I had my trophy and I was so happy. So I'm sitting back enjoying, sipping my wine, you know, uh, with the dinner. And next thing they stand up and they say, and now we're coming to the, the award for top coach. So I go, oh, that's very interesting. I didn't know about a top coach. <laughs> I didn't even know. Thing <laughs> And this person... And as they're describing this person, I'm thinking, they sound very like me. <laughs> and my name was called Daniel. <laughs> I literally, you know, they had like career coach of the year, executive coach of the year, mentor coach of the year, uh, you know, life coach of the year. I did not know there was this category top. Wow. Over it. So that was big. And, and I... Yeah, and it was very meaningful coming from all my good colleagues in the coaching sector in Ireland. And then I was uh, working for my master's. I think in 2018, I got my MC. Yes. And in 2019, I got elected to the ICF Global Board of Directors. So within three years, like it was like I hit three big pies. And people have been saying to me, oh, gosh, you know, how did you manage that all in such a quick space? And then I say, well, it really wasn't that quick because I've been doing it for 19 years. You know, yes. it, I, I had to keep working and I had to be patient. And eventually the plan came together, but it wasn't like it came out of nowhere, I suppose. Mm. I mean, as you say, like, you know, you worked on that for 19 years, but, you know, sometimes all happens at a very short time, but it took long time in form of preparation and in form of like building that foundation, like keeping that example with the boat, you know, 
building a solid boat as well uh, takes time bef- several years before it can be put on yeah. water so yeah. the boat never sees any water for such a long time and then once it's on the water it's in its whole own element as well and it's very similar when i if you allow me to take that kind of um picture you know like literally the boat took time to build as well in a solid way yeah. and then once it's on the water it flows by itself and then all of a sudden you got that recognitions as well yeah. yes no it, it is discovering new lands this chapter you know because mm-hmm. it's been a difficult uh, change of base but uh, it's also been uh, you know new highs climbing to the top of new mountains you know discovering new things Mm-hmm. myself and others on the way you know yes so this chapter four does it last till today i think it's sort of on the term I think okay okay i think you know my fifth chapter is uh i'm, I'm trying to think of a word for it daniel I, I'm kind of thinking, is it kind of shipbuilding or is it dredging the harbor? It's sort of something about me coming full circle. Um, because I think now what I'm most conscious of is kind of legacy building. Is passing on the baton. You know, I'm still active. I still have things to learn. I still have things to offer. But essentially, I am aware that in the cycle of life, new things will call for me. Retirement will call and I probably need to, you know, just discover other aspects of myself that aren't necessarily to do with the professional side. So for me now, I mean, that's why I love doing my coach training because I feel I'm bringing more people into the profession and I'm sharing my experience and wisdom over the the 19 years and, you know, empowering those people to go out and spread the word. So I think, yeah, I'm trying to think, Daniel, is this, am I building a ship? a new ship for others to set sail at this point perhaps or you I, how am yeah. i doing what i heard out of what you just said is i would interpret it in a way that you're building the instruction for others to build their own ships you kind of the you know like a ikea instruction like yeah drafting instructions so others can build a framework but add their yeah. own touch to it, to their own touch of the boat or ship. That's what I, that's how I would interpret it. When you say shipbuilding, yeah. you support others by creating instructions, guidance, yeah. guidance sheets. Yes, and, and even as you're saying that, Daniel, what's coming up to me is maybe now it is about map making. About map, map making. Yeah, yeah, so that I'm like making this map, but others will take that and use it as they see fit. But it is it's some kind of a map. Exactly. You know? 
Yes, I mean, by creating these maps, I mean, you also encourage others to, you know, um, setting their sails and discovering yeah. their new lands in their life. Exactly. And yeah. um, <laughs> what yeah. I currently just see is like this massive, uh, how to say that, a massive, uh, do you say convoy? I mean, like massive, like a numbers of ships, you know. Yes, yes. a Exactly. And then, you know, it's like, a, exactly. And then you take over a whole continent, more or less, with your, not in a, in a, in a enemy kind of way, but in a, in a way of like, experience, life experience, coaching experience, um, passing yeah, knowledge to not a new generation. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, it's like with, uh, similar when you have several boats where you, on that one boat, there is food. On the other boat, they are, you know, each boat has its own uh, task yes. to su support each other. And then you may perhaps have 10 boats on the journey. It's like when you have that coaching training. I mean, you have 10 boats, or it depends how many people yeah. are in your coaching training. And <laughs> everyone wants to build their own ship. But um, they're all start at the same time because it's exactly. a coaching training starts at the same time yeah exactly and uh, i think the aspect of that if i say about the map making is that um you know my my coach training i have evolved as it, it really i think works well in terms of accelerated learning good quality skill building so I've had that translated into Arabic. I've invested in the Arabic translation of that. And again, my hope is because based here in the region that yes, we offer it in English, but through Arabic and me bringing faculty on board to teach it, I can kind of <laughs> create an even bigger flotilla um, of, mm. of both, Daniel. And, you know, We've just had our first Arabic training program delivered with Sharjah Police, which is a huge project. I mean, the first police force, I think, in the Arab world that has taken and trained 20 internal coaches using mm. my program it, through Arabic. And, you know, the wonderful faculty I've had and nearly all of the people uh, who teach on the program are alums of earlier programs of mine. So there's a lovely, you know, circle there as well. Spiral. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I saw yesterday the video actually um, with the Sharsha police as well. Um, and I feel like when you mentioned that also on LinkedIn, when I saw that, uh, and as you said it right now, language connects. You know, when you speak the same language as your component, you can better connect and that other person can better relate as well. So language like um, having the materials, let's say the map in Arabic, um, people yeah. can better relate to it, yeah. 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 And one thing which I also just came to my mind is, you know, when, because I'm also currently part of your training, the co um, coaching training, as you said, you know, you're getting this, waves of people who were part of your previous programs or in the past um, rejoining as well and contributed their knowledge, sharing their knowledge. You kind of created, you kind of flee 
of ships already behind you and you're creating this kind of stuff crew on a ship and the past people who joined your coaching program have already specific titles commander mm -hmm. or whatever you call it on a ship <laughs> <laughs> Captain, um, Captain uh, I, I'm not an expert in uh, sailing, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, you know, everyone has this already position who can, who is a fundamental part of that fleet of ships. And yeah, hmm. that's, yeah. that's very yeah. lovely to see. So I think that's <laughs> of where I'm kind of, I'm kind of in that, I think now, Daniel, that map making phase, you know. So this map making chapter is also your next chapter, right? In your life. Yeah. So it started already, but it it will Yeah, it's continue. the early stage. I think that is the early stage. I'm sure that will continue for another few years. It's kind of a teaser. What's next? <laughs> when you open when you read that in your book. <laughs> um you know, Linda, one one thing I'm very interested in, you know, in every book there is a copyright section um, mm. saying, you know, don't copy this. You need permission from the owner, from the author. You know, reviewing your whole life, what would you advise the readers not to copy from your life? Or in other words, what would you advise to say, hmm, don't make this mistake, maybe do it in a different way? Great, powerful question, Daniel. I think my whole thing is never be a copy. <laughs> never <laughs> okay. be a copy. <laughs> be yourself. You know, I... I wouldn't even put a copyright on my book because I don't think anybody can copy my life. You know what I mean? But if they wanted to try, they're absolutely welcome. They're welcome to if they want to try to copy it. But, you know, it's find who you are. Be who you are. Find your new lens, you know? I mean, everything that's happened in my life has, yes, there's been times in my life that were less happy, but, they, but they've all been important too. They've, they've made me who I am today. They've taught me, <laughs> you know, they've been life lessons. So, mm. yeah. You said, let's find new land. That's something which you would... Uh tell to someone you know when you let's say you're at your harbor and um, someone is about to set their sail and maybe it's a young person what advice would you give that person i think it's about knowing who they are you know what, what's going to feel good for them? What's going to feed their soul? Uh, what's going to capture their attention? So having a, some sense of 
what what will make them satisfied and fulfilled mm. and i think for that you have to go in because a lot of people will tell you your your parents uh, grandparents brothers sisters teachers people will want to advise you for good i mean they, they have your best interest at heart but at the end of the day that answer is yours and that choice is yours Mm. And, and once you have an idea what the direction is, think about how you can move towards it. What little baby step? Don't feel overwhelmed by it. What little baby step will take you in that direction? And also know that after three, four years, you might change your mind again. And that's okay. That's okay. My experience coaching, career coaching young graduates at the university was that they felt overwhelmed by the decision because they felt the decision they would make, the choice they would make sitting in my office age 20 was going to be a burden on them for 40 years. And really, I would tell them my story, Daniel, because I'd say I have reinvented myself so many times. Just think about what you want for the next five years. And also this burden uh, that they carry around other people's expectations, what others might want them to. So I mean, many live the life of others as well. And yeah. you only realize that once you feel really down in a sense of you, you're not yourself anymore. And then you come to the realization that perhaps you live always the dreams of others rather than actually identifying what are your dreams maybe in the, when we're keeping that picture of the boat you know what is your dream island you want to yeah. enter um, and not hopping from one island to another island where you are not the owner or you not interested in um, no. and you said something very interesting which I really like it's you know you said it's okay to change the direction Because often, um, and I can see that so many times in all kind of areas in life, you know, we put ourselves under pressure of sticking to the goal. Yeah. But if we're not reaching that goal, maybe that could be also seen as a success because we find something else which touch our heart in a more exciting way. And then, then it's okay to redirect and change the direction. Yeah. Because opportunities happen, yeah, come our way, and it would be a pity sometimes to close off that opportunity because it wasn't in the plan. It's like, oh, I don't see that on my map. But actually, if you opened out the map a bit further, or you turn the map over, or you add a bit to the map, that could be such an amazing part. That's true. Yeah. Lovely. So, Linda, when I now finish the last chapter or actually the next chapter in your life, chapter five, or kind of see like what's next in your book, and I, I close the book and I turn it around, what title do I read on your, on your book? I, I think I have to stay with my metaphor of the sea and the people. 
I, I think I would call us the hopeful explorer or the hopeful voyager. One of those. Uh -huh. Voyager, the hopeful voyager, yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, voyage, you know, life in a voyage is, is a bit of a cliche, you know, but I really feel that sums up my life. And I feel always hope. Apart from that two-year period that I told you about that was particularly dark and intense in my life, I, in those two years, what I learned was when you don't have hope. Because I realized that I was born a hopeful person. I have wells of hope. And I know now what it could be like for people that haven't had that disposition from birth. And when it was restored to me, when that hope and that hopefulness mindset came back to me, it, it just is amazing because with hope, and hope, you know, isn't saying that bad things won't happen or it's not being naive, but hope is that intense trust that things will work out, that we will survive, that we can do it, we can find our way through. So I think hope has been my greatest asset on my journey through life. Mm. Feels like the, the foundation uh, where mm -hmm. you can then build on everything. Once it, there's a strong foundation of hope, the earth can shake, but the foundation mm -hmm. stays strong. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Great. Linda, I was just thinking, where can I find your book? But I feel like your book can be found easier on the Amazon or on the Kindle store than in a traditional library. But I guess it's definitely a hard copy of that as well. <laughs> I guess it's available everywhere in, a, in an every kind of format on the hard copy, but also on a digital yeah. format. Yeah. And maybe I can sell the movie rights. <laughs> Probably. And in form of a movie and in probably as part of the, and then, you know, for every shipbuilder, they get a free copy of your book as well. And uh, <laughs> so when, you know, when people are lonely on the ship on the, in the middle of the ocean, they just read your book. It's a perfect uh, biography, autobiography to read when you're lonely on the middle of the ocean and you lost hope. <laughs> ah, lovely. Um, I see the perfect case study in front of me already, like uh, the book for people. What is that, and you that uh, Daniel, you know that, I can't remember, is it a myth or a story where they're at sea and they, they need to see the albatross over them because they know the albatross means they're near land because it's such a big bird, it can't go too far. Mm -hmm. If you remember that story, no. No, too young. I remember that from my childhood. So I could be like that. Al my book could be like that albatross or that lonely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
<laughs> so once you see it, you you have hope again that you enter a new land. Flying. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Like the angel, the flying angel, um, carrying yeah, the book with you. It could be. Lovely. Um, Linda, I slowly want to wrap up our lovely conversation. But before I go and really end the conversation, um, can you tell us where, when people really want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Where can they read more about you? Mm. You mean just actually? Yes, <laughs> well, a website, uh, platforms, where can they? Or maybe where can they reach out best, to you? The best way uh, for people to find me easily is LinkedIn. Uh, mm -hmm. Linda McLaughlin. Just look up my name uh, on LinkedIn and send me a message there. Uh, I, I'd love to hear from people. I really would. I do have a website as well, www.leadershipworks.ie. Uh, if people want to check that out. But I, I think uh, LinkedIn is, uh, I, I find LinkedIn works very, very well. Lovely. Yeah, I, I put. Check in, I check into LinkedIn every day. It's part of my routine. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, I will put that links directly in the show notes as well. So for everyone, just click on the link and I can directly see Linda uh, <laughs> LinkedIn yeah. page as well. <clears throat> Lovely. And I, I to post quite a bit so they can follow follow my hopeful voice. I, I can definitely agree to that. I can sign that. I, every time I'm going on, on LinkedIn, I can see a new, I literally, it's, it's a live feed of Linda and her adventures. And it's great to follow her um, because I can see what she has done the previous days, but also what she believes in. Uh, it's really lovely. <laughs> Everyone, it's worth recommending to reach out to her on LinkedIn. Um, Linda, lovely talking to you. We really lovely talking to you. I feel like now I need to go out on a boat. I need to rent a boat and um, sail out into the ocean in terms of COVID where everything is getting kind of locked down again. So I think the safe, a safe harbor is in the middle of the ocean these days, these months. Um, and I think I get your book immediately and uh, take it as my reading literature, <laughs> reading book <laughs> throughout the journey. <laughs> Lovely. Thank, Thank you so much. I so enjoyed it. It's been a really great conversation and happy trip down memory lane for me. Thank you so much. I mean, we almost talked for two hours. Can you imagine? <laughs> no. <laughs> almost for two hours. This has nothing to do with like 20 minute coaching or one hour coaching. This was a two hour conversation. <laughs> I think I'm I'm prepared for a two-hour coaching session now and the future. Okay. Lovely. Thank you so much, Linda, for your time. And yeah, I wish you best luck for the chapter five and looking forward to catch up with you in the future to see, you know, how the chapter five turned out to be as a follow-up. Our paths will surely cross. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Linda. Bye. So here we are. After listening to all the discoveries, I kind of feel encouraged to plan a new adventure for next year. I'm not sure about you, but I found it very inspiring and energizing. 
We don't need to wait till the pandemic ends. We always can start living right now at this moment. You'll find more about Linda on her website at leadershipworks.com. You will find them also in the show notes. Hope you spend the pre-Christmas time in a safe environment. Stay healthy. See you next time. Just never forget, never give up, always look up.